The passage that we're going to be looking at today, as you, as you can see, is in Galatians chapter 5. It's a very familiar passage to us, but hopefully, uh, as we look at it, it'll be, uh, we'll flesh out some details for you that will help you understand the passage a lot better. So we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 16 to 26. 16 to 26. The Word of God reads, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful for this opportunity that we have to study your word and to see how we might fight sin, to see what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. Lord, as we look at your, at your word, as we study it, we pray that you would open our eyes to see what you want us to see, that you would help us to be encouraged, that you would help us to be challenged, and Lord, ultimately, that we might have a higher view of you as a result of this. We pray, Lord, that you would honor yourself in the preaching of your word. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. When we look at human history, we find consistently in every single civilization that there is war. War. War is there. And why is war there? Well, war is there because civilizations, civilizations needed to grow. They needed to survive. They needed to protect those who couldn't protect themselves. War was a necessity. It was and continues to be a part of life. Today, we work very hard to avoid war. We use whatever diplomatic means we can in order to, to get peace because we've seen the horrors of war. We don't want to continue in war. Yet, we know that war is still a reality. Though the majority of us only know what it's like to live in peacetime, this has not prevented us from glorifying war. We have video games that simulate war, where digital soldiers go through digital streets trying to kill digital terrorists. We have professional athletes, football players, baseball players, basketball players, talking about the need for them to work hard, to train hard, so that on game day they can strap up and go to war with their brothers in a search of championships. All of this talk of war without truly knowing what war is like. This morning, we are going to be talking about a war, but it's not a war in terms of international incidents that loom over us, nor is it... Uh, a war that's not truly a war. 
we're going to be talking about spiritual war this morning. The war within the people that we know and love. The war that, wage, that rages within our very souls. You and I tend to live as if we are in spiritual peacetime. Since we seldom deal with spiritual issues that seem like they're about to crush us, we tend to grow complacent. We are inattentive to the battle for our hearts. We even evaluate our spiritual lives laxly, believing that if we've not done any major sins, that we're fine before God. But these little sins, these little worldview concessions, they chip away at our spiritual health. We are less vigilant against the attack of Satan upon our faith and our integrity because nothing major has happened. Therefore, we don't need to respond as we ought to respond. Brothers and sisters, until Christ comes again, we live during spiritual wartime, not during spiritual peacetime. And the only way that we're going to be able to fight well in this war is if we walk by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is something that many Christians have been told to do, since they've been freed from the curse of sin. But what does that mean? What does that look like in the life of a believer? Well, this morning we're going to explore what walking by the Spirit entails by examining two opposing characteristics. Two opposing characteristics that help us understand what walking by the Spirit entails. Now, the first characteristic that helps us understand what walking by the Spirit entails are the deeds of the flesh. The deeds of the flesh. Now, if, you, if you've never studied the book of Galatians or you just need a refresher, Paul is writing to the, church, to the church in Galatia in order to combat the heretical teaching of the group of people called Judaizers. Judaizers were basically a group of people who professed to be Christians. But they said, in order for you to truly be saved, you first needed to convert to Judaism and then follow the moral law of Moses as well as believing in Christ. I don't know about you, but that is a problem. That is a significant problem. Not just because of the ethnic issues that it presents, but it affects salvation negatively. Essentially, what the Judaizers were saying is that salvation through through grace, through faith, is not enough. It's not enough. Salvation through Christ is not enough. You need Judaism plus the law. Galatians 5 is Paul's correction, and he's talking about freedom. He's talking about the freedom that Christ's work on the cross has given believers because they are no longer under the yoke of the law. Not that the law was bad in and of itself. The law was great. The law established righteousness. The law helped people understand how holy God is. And it helped people understand what a sinful people must do in order to live with a holy God. The only thing that came out of the law that was negative was it showed us that we can't, in and of ourselves, do anything to save ourselves. And it showed us that we need someone to help us, to help us to be made right, to be made right with God. Now, this freedom that we have through Christ, it's great. But as we all know, sometimes the idea of freedom leads some to take advantage, to abuse liberty, to serve themselves, and to increase sin. 
And so Paul combats this tendency by addressing the natural desire for all of us to carry out the desire of the flesh. He says here in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, you've been, if you paid attention to what I just read, that should stop you straight in your tracks. We all know what it means to struggle with sin. We all struggle with sin. We all have had our battles with sin. And we've had many victories. But I'm sure if you're like me, you've also had many defeats as well. Now, what Paul says here is, uh, is striking because we often take the fight to temptation and to sin through our own efforts. We try through our own human effort to fight sin. What do we do? Well, we set up accountability partners. We set up accountability programs. We read books. We listen to sermons. All of those things are good things. Don't get me wrong. I want you to do all those things, but all but they are not sufficient. They are not sufficient. You are doing everything that you can externally to deal with your sin. And that's good, but you're only dealing with the surface issue. You're only dealing with, you're only dealing with your behavior. What lies underneath are spiritual problems. Your sin issues, your sin struggles, those are spiritual issues. You can set up all the accountability programs that you want. It's not going to help you defeat sin because the heart issue, the main thing that's wrong with you on the inside fundamentally is the thing that is causing you to continue to sin. And because our struggles are with spiritual problems that lead to moral problems, we need the Holy Spirit to help us. We need him to work in our hearts to make us righteous, to guide us so that we can actually deal with the spiritual problems that are within us and live righteously. Verse 17, it says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. The reality of spiritual warfare is before us, and what is left of our, spiritual, of our sinful human nature rebels against the new spiritual life that we've been given by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Though we are free from sin... Sin still exists in our mortal bodies. And it is this resistance from our sinful human nature that causes us to be at war within ourselves, regardless of whether we're aware of that war or not. When we desire to fight sin, when we desire to kill sin in our lives, we engage in this warfare. But this is also why it's so common for us as believers to struggle at times with our assurance of our salvation. Because the question that we ask is, if I've been saved from my sin, why am I still struggling with sin? Why do I still struggle? I want to beat it. Why do I still fall? Paul himself struggled with this. You're not the only one. And as he notes in Romans 7... The struggle of sin is very, very real. It's so hard at times where you can't help but cry out, Wretched man that I am. Who will free me from the body of this death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh and the law 
of sin. There is certainly a tension. There is certainly a tension between living in our sinful human bodies and living according to the new life that we've been granted in Christ. But there is hope. There is hope because God has not left us alone. He has not left us alone, but he has given us his Holy Spirit to be our helper. John 14, 16 to 17 tells us that Jesus' ascension to heaven was necessary because when he ascended to heaven, he was able to give us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who will be with us and who will dwell with us and dwell in us so that we can do what's right. That's our hope. Now going back to verse 18, that's why Paul says if we are led by the Spirit, we are not under the law. What does that mean? Well, it means that if you've repented of your sin, if you've believed upon Jesus and you are growing spiritually, that you do love God, that you do love people, that you love God's word, you can have assurance. You can have the assurance that you've been truly saved and are free from your enslavement to sin. Not only that, but you are also no longer under the law. And it's demands of righteousness that are unattainable on an individual basis. As a result, you are also free from the curse of sin that results from disobedience to the law. You are no longer in danger of eternal hell. However, not being under the law doesn't mean that you can sin as much as you want because Jesus paid for it anyway. That's not what it means. You still have a responsibility. You still have an obligation to God the Father to do what is right. But the difference is that your desire to obey, your need to obey, isn't because you have to. It's because you want to. Because of your love for God the Father. Because it is so strong, so rich. All that you want to do is please Him. And your obedience, then, isn't something that you have to do out of obligation, necessarily, um, for your own righteousness. But it is done out of an obligation of love. Because I love God, I want to obey. Because I love God, I want to be righteous. Now, when we look at verse 19, we, we look a little bit more at the flesh. And it says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. It's obvious. And it's not just obvious to us who are believers. It's obvious to everyone, to all of mankind, as to what they are. The deeds of the flesh are apparent to everyone. They're violations against God's moral law. And they are shown for what they are. The deeds of the flesh are as follows. We have immorality. We're talking about unlawful and immoral sexual relationships. Essentially, this covers all sorts of sexual conduct that is outside of God's design for sex within the confines of heterosexual marriage. Impurity. Impurity talks about sin in general. But it carries this idea of a moral uncleanness. It's the idea that we are unclean, that we're stained with sin, and we cannot be in the presence of the pure and holy God. This is the feeling that Isaiah felt in Isaiah 6. When he finds himself in the throne room of God, he sees God Almighty on the throne, high and lifted up, and he looks at himself and he sees his sin and he says, Woe is me, for I am unclean. 
That's the idea of impurity, that you stand before God, a wicked sinner, stained by sin, and you really ought not to have the privilege of being near him. That is the idea of impurity. Sensuality. Originally, this sin refers to any excess or lack of restraint, but its meaning eventually became understood as unrestrained sexual indulgence. Idolatry. This refers not just to those golden little statues that people pray to or offer incense to or food to, but it could include anything that substitutes for the true and living God in our lives. You know, for some of us, idolatry comes in the form of our spouses, or at least the desire to have a spouse. For those of us who are still in school, academics are our God. I have to get a 4.0 because I have to get into a really good school so that I can get a really good job. For some of us, financial goals. I have to get a better paying job so I can live here in this city. For others, sports. Consumed by our love for sports. Whether it's watching sports, playing sports... Our love for sports as a culture is huge. And we just celebrated another championship. That's great. But are we consumed by our passion for sports? To the point where all that matters is whether the dubs get to repeat in the next five years. And for the, for the rest of us, our leisure. Whether that comes in the form of you having the time to play as much video games as you Please, before your eyes fall out, or uh, whether it means that you get to go on vacation. All of these things, they're not bad in and of themselves, but when we allow for them to take the place of God in our lives, they become sinful. The next deed of the flesh that we see is sorcery. Now, this, this word is actually uh, the root from which we derive the word pharmacy. It's the root word that we derive, our English word, pharmacy. Okay, But um, we're not saying that pharmacists are bad. So if we have any pharmacists here, you're okay. You're okay. We're not saying that you're, you're, uh, you're bad. Okay, uh, But in, in New Testament times, this word was used to refer to the drugs that were used to poison people or to even uh, be used during sorcery or witchcraft. Drugs that uh, were mood or mind-altering drugs. The next deed of the flesh that we see is enmities. This is, can also be translated as hostilities. It refers to hateful attitudes towards others which lead to bitter conflicts. Strife. This is, uh, this is a slant or disp- disposition towards arguments and disagreements. Jealousy. Jealousy itself can actually be pretty neutral in the sense that God is described as being jealous for his own glory. It can also be translated as being zealous, being passionate for God. However, this is not the sense that Paul has in mind here. Here he is talking about sinful jealousy, a jealousy that we might have against others for their successes and opportunities that they've been afforded over ours. Outbursts of anger. Like jealousy, it can have a neutral connotation if it's an outburst of righteous anger. Right, when Jesus 
went to the temple and he was cleaning it out, flipping tables and whipping people, he was angry because, why? Because God's glory was being downgraded. Because people did not care about God's glory. Because they made God's house, which should have been a house of worship, into a den of robbers. And so his anger was a righteous anger. It was for the glory of God. And you and I, when we are angry, uh, it tends not to be righteous anger, does it? It's anger that's focused on self. How dare you cut me off on the freeway? I was in the lane. You had no space. Why did you cut me off? Right? And you can kind of see a little in, insight into how I get angry, right? <laughs> um, and I still, I still struggle with that, right? But that's not a godly reason. Right? Well, we have to be very, very careful of our anger, brothers and sisters. Our anger is not always righteous anger. And so when we are angry, you might say, oh, well, you know, it's just natural. It's human. Yeah, it is. But it's still sin. It is still sin. Disputes. We're not just talking about mere disagreements here. In the New Testament, this word was used to denote a mercenary spirit, a selfish ambition that drove disagreements, dissensions. When used elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul uses this word to talk about those who brought in divisions or dissensions into a church. Most likely, it was associated with some form of heresy. Factions. This is similar to dissensions. It refers to the differences in opinions and thoughts among a group of people. Now, having differences of opinion and and thought, that's human. But when these opposing schools of thought attack one another, that's when it becomes a problem. If you want to think about it, this is uh, something that Paul addressed in the church when some were saying, I am of Paul. I am of Peter. And then the super spiritual were saying, oh yeah, well, I got you beat. I'm of Jesus. And these factions, they become a problem because instead of being unified together, instead of loving one another, we divide. What's the next deed of the flesh? Envying. This sin is related to jealousy, but unlike jealousy, it has no neutral meaning. Those who are guilty of envying are those who have a grudging spirit towards others and cannot bear to contemplate someone else's success. Drunkenness. Just like gluttony is the excessive indulgence in food, drunkenness speaks to the excessive indulgence of wine and strong drink. It's not the fact that you can't drink, but it's the excessive indulgence in wine and strong drink. Carousing. This is translated as revelry. Uh, it has this idea of celebrating, and celebrating's fine, but what we have here is a celebrating that leads to great drunkenness uh, and poor moral decisions. And then finally, Paul wraps it up by saying, and things like these. Paul has given us an extensive list here of sins, extensive list of the deeds of the flesh. But when he says, and things like these, What he's saying here is that these 15 sins that he has listed are not the only 15 sins that we deal with. They are 15 of many. 15 of many. Paul's list was by no means an extensive list of sins, but they were apparently sins that were of particular struggle for the people in Galatia. 
Now, as we look at this list that Paul provides, we understand that not all of us struggle with all of the sins that Paul lists. But the point is still there. We are all guilty of the deeds of the flesh. Not one of us gets through this list unscathed. We are all guilty of one, at least. And maybe not all at the same time, but we're guilty of them. And so that's what makes this next statement of Paul troubling for some of us. Paul warned and has warns and has warned that those who practice the deeds of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. They have no part of the heavenly kingdom to come. For unbelievers, this should function as a source of warning for you. There should be no expectation of peace following death for you. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will not go to heaven just because you are generally a good person. You may be generally a good person. You may be really moral. But the issue is you still have a fundamental sin problem. And that problem can only be solved through Jesus Christ. Only he can make you righteous so that you might go to heaven. The only way to experience peace with God is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that offer of salvation is available to you today if you would repent of your sins and believe upon Christ. Now, for Christians, this can be a little disconcerting because Paul seems to make a definitive statement here that says that all who practice these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, how can that be if we still live in this mortal body and we still struggle with sins at times? Well, the key word here that helps us understand Paul's meaning is the word practice. The word practice in the Greek is a present active participle. And that's an important detail here because it refers to a continual, ongoing action of sin such as these. The continual practice of the deeds of the flesh with no genuine repentance whatsoever. Those, that continual practice of sin That's what bars people from entering into the kingdom of heaven. Again, this does not mean that you can live your life however you want, that you can sin as much as you want, because you'll just repent of it later. But what this helps us with is that it offers us great assurance that when we do stumble, when we do sin, we have not lost our salvation. If we strive to walk by the Spirit and are not characterized by the deeds of the flesh, then what should characterize genuine believers of Jesus Christ? Well, this leads us to our second characteristic that helps us understand what walking by the Spirit entails, and that is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is set in direct contrast to the deeds of the flesh. In Paul, he shows the difference between these two opposing characteristics. If the deeds of the flesh are not to characterize those who have placed their faith in Christ, the fruit of the Spirit must characterize them. Notice that in contrast to the deeds of the flesh, plural, the fruit of the Spirit is in the singular. And this is not a mistake. Paul's point is that all who are genuinely saved will display the fruit of the Spirit in its entirety in their lives. Granted, the outward manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit in the life of a believer may take some time to develop. 
Not every believer will demonstrate it right away. They won't have mature fruit right away. But the point is, if you are a genuine believer, you will produce fruit in your life. You will demonstrate these qualities in your life. And if you don't have these qualities in your life, that should get you to pause and think, am I actually in the faith or am I self-deceived? The fruit of the Spirit is as follows. Love. This is our familiar word for love. It is agape, and it is the form of love that reflects a personal choice, a love that is faithful, a love that is selfless. This aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is important because this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is commanded of all believers. John 13, 34 to 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is a defining aspect of the fruit of the Spirit because it demonstrates the love that God and that God in Christ has demonstrated for us. Next, we see joy. Joy is often associated with happiness. But the joy that Christians have is a joy not rooted in the circumstances of life, It's a joy that is rooted in the hope of the glory of God. It is a joy that is rooted in the hope of eternity with God. And so that's why, brothers and sisters, when we suffer, we can say that we count it all joy. We can count it all joy because our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in God himself. Peace. Peace is rooted in God himself. It stems from the assurance and comfort that comes from having a saving relationship with God. And it's a peace that carries on to calm us and to comfort us when things don't go the way that we want them to go in our lives. When we cannot see what God is doing in our lives, when we're struggling, when we're fearful, this peace that we have is a peace that results because we know that we are right before the Lord. And that we will be with him. Next, patience. Now this word patience, it's a great word. But a word that has a little more precision is long-suffering. It means that you have a long fuse. It takes a long time for you to get angry, even if you've been wronged. And this patience is the same patience that God demonstrates to us. In 2 Peter 3.9, it tells us that God's not slow about bringing about his promises, but he is patient. He is long-suffering with us because he desires for us to be saved, not, willing for, not wanting for uh, any to perish. He is patient in bringing about his judgment and bringing about his kingdom because he wants those who are unbelieving to repent of their sins and believe upon him. Kindness. The idea here is a tender concern for others that desires to show the kindness and grace of God to others. Goodness. This word is actually synonymous with kindness, but the emphasis here is on the quality of being good, of a moral and spiritual excellence that reflects God's moral excellence. Faithfulness. The quality of being dependable, loyal, and trustworthy, just as God himself is dependable, loyal, and trustworthy. Gentleness. This also can be translated as meekness, and it carries with it an aspect of self-control. In this case, 
Gentleness refers to power under control. And we can see this uh, illustrated well when we have toddlers. And we have toddlers who have little infant siblings or even just younger siblings in general. And they want to play with their babies, baby brother, baby sister, the same way that they play with their friends. Right? So they'll grab them, they'll hug them, they'll roll them around. And you know, as, as uh, parents or just as observers, you're just like, oh, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. Right? What do we say? Gentle, gentle. Right? We remind toddlers that they have to be gentle with their little siblings. And this is the same idea here. We might have great power, but we want to be gentle towards one another. We restrain our power to lovingly come alongside people and to win them over. Self-control. The ability to control or restrain both your passions, which means your anger or your other emotional responses, and your appetites, food, drink, and even sex. And just like, this, just like the first list, there is a summary statement that follows the list. And this time, Paul says that against the fruit of the Spirit, there is no law. What does he mean by that? Well, unlike the sins that were listed in verses 19 to 21, the world as a whole, they prize the fruit of the Spirit. They might not identify it as the fruit of the Spirit, but they prize the fruit of the Spirit. They don't write laws against the fruit of the Spirit. Right? They don't say, no, you can't be loving. You can't have peace. That's illegal. Right? They don't say that. The fruit of the Spirit, they're virtues. They're seen as desirable in the lives of all citizens. And then as we turn to verse 24 to 26, we see Paul's exhortations in light of the command to walk by the Spirit back in verse 16. It says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified, or have, sorry, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let's, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Verse 24 reminds Christians that those who belong to Christ, they've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This reminds us of Romans 6. Right? If we are one with Christ, if we've identified with Him in His death, and his burial, and his resurrection, then the flesh, the natural sinful human desires that we have, they've been crucified with him too. And we've become spiritually alive. We've been made spiritually alive. And so, if you truly belong to Christ, if you truly belong to Christ, the flesh has no more power over you, even though there is a spiritual war going on within you between the spirit and the flesh. You can rely on God. You can rely on the Holy Spirit to help you not carry out the desire of your flesh. Because the freedom which you have gained in Christ, it gives you victory over sin. Therefore, if we live by the Spirit, if we've, made, if we've been made spiritually alive by the Spirit, we must also walk by the Spirit. We are to let our lives be controlled by the Spirit, rather than allowing for our sin nature to win. We are to fight, to fight sin with Scripture. We memorize Scripture. We know Scripture so that we can actually fight sin, that we know what our sins are, and we know how to deal with them. That we pray that we rely on the Lord, that we recognize that we can't on our own defeat sin, but with the Holy Spirit's help, we can. And not only that, but we can, be, we can walk by the Spirit. 
when we strive to know God, when we strive to love God to the point where when we look at our sin, it's just unappetizing. Why would I want sin when I can have God? Why would I want sin when I can have God? God is far, far better. You know, if, if 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is true, if no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will give you the way to escape, then when you are tempted, you don't need to sin. You don't need to sin. Sometimes when we feel tempted, we just give in. Right? I'm tempted to sin. I'll think about it a little bit. Don't want to do it? No, not really. But I'm tempted. I'll do it. Jesus forgave me anyway. It's okay. But brothers and sisters, we don't have to give into temptation. We can fight temptation. What we see here, particularly if you look at the word endure, so that you will be able to endure it. When the pressure of temptation comes pressing down upon you, God gives you strength. He allows for you to endure. He allows for you to stand up under it. When it comes pressing down, you stand up under it. God gives you the ability to do that. You don't have to sin. You think you do, but you don't have to. You don't have to. We often don't strive as hard as we can to defeat sin in our lives. Hebrews 12 mentions that when it tells us that you've not striven to the point of blood in order to resist temptation. What's the point? Not that you're supposed to mutilate yourself to fight sin, but the fact that when we try to fight sin in our lives, we don't try that hard. We don't try that hard. The sin tempts us. It lures us. And we roll over. But brothers and sisters, if you've been freed from sin... Why would you ever put yourself back into enslavement to it? You can, in fact, walk by the Spirit. You can, in fact, do what is right. And you can turn away from sin. You can choose to do what you know honors God. Now, we turn our attention to verse 26. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Verse 26 addresses a problem that was more specific to what the Galatian church was struggling through, but it's also a fitting way to close out Paul's discussion with the Galatians in terms of their freedom and using it as an opportunity to increase sin. What we see here is, is addressing some of the infighting that's described in, verses five, uh, in chapter 5, verse 15, where the abuse of freedom led to the people biting and devouring one another. And so... Brothers and sisters, we've been given freedom. We've been given freedom because of the Holy Spirit. And because we understand that we are free in Christ, that we are being Spirit-led because of Christ, we have the ability as children of God to show the fruit of the Spirit to one another, even if the offending party doesn't deserve it. We don't have to use our freedom in the law as an opportunity to continue in more sin. And so as those who have been saved, as those who have been given the fruit of the Spirit by the Spirit Himself, we must strive 
to be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, by actively putting to death the sin that is in our lives and choosing to grow in fruit. The reality of spiritual warfare around us is undeniable. There are so many times when we know what's right. We know how we ought to respond, but we choose not to do it. For some of us, we've battled with sin for a very, very long time. Sometimes it's the same, same sin. And after we've battled with it for a very, very long time and it doesn't get better, it can seem like it's hopeless. I won't ever get rid of this. There is no end in sight. But that's not true. That is not true. Yes, we do have two opposing characteristics in our lives that battle for control in us. Right? We have the deeds of the flesh up against the fruit of the Spirit. But what we've been reminded by Paul today is that if we live by the Spirit, we have the certain ability to not carry out the desires of the flesh. If we walk by the Spirit, we will by no means carry out the deeds of the flesh. If there is, a spirit, if there is spiritual war going on around us and within us, we must then be vigilant. We must be on guard. We must remember that we are active duty soldiers in spiritual warfare. And therefore, we are not to give in to sin, but we are to walk by the Spirit. We are to grow in our knowledge of God and be conscious of fighting sin in our lives, especially those sins that like to hide in plain sight. Brothers and sisters, walk by the Spirit, and you will by no means carry out the desires of the flesh. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are so grateful to you for giving us your word, for giving us comfort and hope, giving us the assurance of our salvation, even though we still struggle with sin in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would come alongside those of us who believe in you. You might comfort those of us who are discouraged, who have had long battles with sin. And we pray that you would help them to feel the relief and peace of the freedom that's been given because of Christ. May you help them strive to walk by the Spirit so that they will by no means carry out the desires of the flesh. And for those of us who may not be discouraged, we pray that you would continue to be with us, continue to make us vigilant, continue to help us have a strong desire to put off sin in our lives and to put on righteousness. Help us desire, O oh Lord, to be the men and women that you want us to be so that we can bring great glory and honor to your name. And for those of us who are here today who do not believe in you, who have not yet repented of their sin, we pray that you would help them to see that though they may be good people, they still have a sin problem before you and therefore cannot be with you. We pray, Lord, that you would help them to see, to understand that Christ is the only way that they will be able to be made right with you. And we pray that you would convict them in their hearts and that you would help them see the need to repent of their sins and believe upon you so that they might have eternal life with you and not eternal hell. Father, we thank you for this day. 
We thank you for the opportunity that we have to study your word. And it's your son's name we pray. Amen.